This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. From award-winning masterpieces to festival-fresh gems, movies you've been dying to see or ones you've never heard of before, there's always something new to discover. For a limited time only, during the Cannes Film Festival, you can try Mubi for three months for just $1. Till the end of the festival on May 25th, go to mubi.com slash filmcomment to claim the offer. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmcomment for 90 days of hand-picked cinema for just $1. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Lila Aviles's The Chambermaid. An official selection of new directors' new films, this richly observed portrait of a maid in a high-end hotel in Mexico City comes to theaters starting June 26th. Ovid.tv is a new streaming service devoted to films that you can't find anywhere else. Only on Ovid can you watch Wang Bing's monumental Dead Souls, an oral history account of China's re-education camps. To start streaming, head over to www.ovid.tv. That's O-V-I-D Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is another episode in our Cannes edition. This is the sixth day, I think, we're counting. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Halfway point. Halfway point. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, two new voices uh, for this edition, um, starting with... Uh, Dennis Lim. I'm the Director of Programming at Film at Lincoln Center. And... Jonathan Romney, critic, and among other things, I do the Film Comment Film of the Week online. Yes, and you actually you wrote about uh, Baccarat last yeah. week. Uh, and who knows what will be next week? Who knows, who indeed. Knows? Well, uh, today, although it's a weekend, we've been working very hard. Uh, and yesterday was uh, a big day, I'd say, because at least I was anticipating very much the, the Cornelio Poromboyu movie, uh, the Whistlers, uh, which has a kind of uh, arcane or recherche premise <laughs> of being set in the Canary Islands. Uh, does either of you want to uh, give a bit of a précis of it? I couldn't begin to give you a précis of this <laughs> film. Um, I mean, it's so completely radically uh, off-piste for Poromboyu, and it, it doesn't fit any preconceptions of uh, Romanian cinema at all, except that... There are elements of, you know, the familiar stories of uh, bureaucracy and uh, corruption that we've seen before, but um, pitched on a completely different level. I mean, if, if I were to try and explain what it was, I'd have to say it's almost like Poromboyo's equivalent of one of those kind of jokey, thrillerish novels that Graham Greene used to call entertainments rather than, you know, as it were, his hard novels. And um, it's basically the story of... Um, a policeman played by um, the uh, ubiquitous Vlad Ivanov, who um, is involved in cracking some kind of robbery or scam. Or I, I, I was beginning to drift from mid-festival fatigue, so I wasn't exactly sure what it's about, but it involves him going to um, the uh, island of La Gomera in the Canaries, where people 
communicate in, or criminals or bandits communicate in a sort of special kind of whistling jargon where they translate words into whistles. And he's involved with a kind of femme fatale. And actually, I didn't note the name of the actress. I've never seen her before. But it was quite clear that in that screening, phone calls would be going off to the producers of the Bond movie saying, get her in now, because <laughs> she has just, you know, she has is just made for the follow-up to uh, Skyfall or whatever. And she does have this real kind of, you know, femme fatale um, intensity in a very kind of parodic way, which plays off very nicely against Vladimir Ivanov's sort of, you know, um, kind of schlub out of his depth detective. Um, but there's extraordinary stuff in it. There's a kind of zigzag time scheme which skips between the Canaries and... Bucharest, and I wasn't quite sure what was happening when, or but but you know, it's a film. It is a kind of labyrinthine film to get lost in. I think it's yeah. I think the structure is deliberately, almost sort of like comically complicated. You know, it's supposed to be exceedingly convoluted. Um, in but I do think I do think there are, it is very much. I, I think in some ways it's it's different for Porn Boyu, but I do think there's. Um, Tonally, there there are many things about the film that remind me of his previous work, um, but but I do like actually what he's done with the tone of this one. I think there's this this droll deadpan um, that we associate with him and and with a lot of the Romanian uh, uh, new wave uh, is there. But I think there's also like a kind of um, playfulness and exuberance to the narrative and to the filmmaking that um, is I think really quite delightful. Yeah, it, I mean, I, you can almost just feel feel him enjoying the possibilities of working in this framework, and uh, and just the kind of almost old fashioned or old Hollywood pleasures of what's around the corner, you know, what's the next step going to be, and playing with the suspense, maybe sometimes abandoning the suspense and then coming back to it, uh, and I, that was kind of refreshing, and it also felt like a more um, more of a dynamic frame a bit that he was using, uh, more kind of propulsive a little bit. And thematically, I mean, I think it connects with some of his, you know, his interest in in language, which, with mm-hmm. this idea of like yeah. the whistling, you know, language is sort of like a, a comical uh, version of certain themes that he's explored, may, maybe most notably in Police Adjective. Yeah, and and the whistling, I don't know, for me, for it seemed for a lot of the audience that I was with, it seemed like a punchline each time it happened. It's almost like the Charlie Brown voice a little bit. <laughs> You know, of the of the parents, where it's a long sequence, but they're communicating. You see in the subtitles, what it's. I mean, I don't. I guess it's. It is real, right? The whistle language is real. If it's not, it's pretty convincing. Allegedly. I'm pretty sure it is actually. No, I think I I actually encountered an, a filmmaker who's making a documentary about this. Oh, uh, cool. not long ago. So it yeah. must be. But it packs so much information, these whistles. And at one yeah. point, they specifically give the name of a hospital uh, yeah. in Bucharest. And you think, really? How do they do that? Um, yeah. I mean, it's very inventive. And there comes a point when the kind of a twist and the double crosses pile up so fast. And a character who, you know, has barely played a role before, you suddenly think, oh, they're in it too. And mm-hmm. um, I completely lost track. There is a wonderful moment when they wander on to, into this very, very strange place, and someone says, mm-hmm. where are we? And they say, it's an abandoned film set. Oh, yeah. And um, it's strange. It has this very dreamlike quality and a very dreamlike ending. But one of the things also about it is that little elements pay off in, in a big way, you know, everything has consequence, everything yeah. has resonance. There's a moment where he hides some money he's been given 
and then his mother gets hold of it and says, oh, I've given it to the local priest. And this has an extraordinary sort of snowball set of consequences. I mean, it's yeah. very cleverly worked out yeah. plot-wise. I would need to go back again to, to actually unpick it yeah. um, wide awake. But yeah. <laughs> um, it's certainly um, not like anything he's done, certainly not like anything else in the festival. Yeah, I, and, uh, and he has a nice little, just kind of speaking of previous films, he has a nice little shout out with with a screening that they, they for one of the clandestine meetings they go to a screening of the searchers um so uh you know john wayne kind of s slowing things down to his pace for a moment with with the, the pictures there yeah, but the, i mean it's full of these little yeah. you know cinematic in jokes i mean the film fatal fatal is named gilda and you know right like yeah yeah well i mean that, and that's uh that's so that's the Porn Boyu movie, uh, The Whistler is, the, the title actually, I guess, in, is, is originally like La Gomera, La Gomera, which is the name of the, the island. Name of the island. Uh, and yeah, it starts also, just worth mentioning, it starts off with an Iggy Pop song, <laughs> uh, The Passenger, um, and then various other choice little musical flourishes. So, but uh, another film that was yesterday, which was a bit more of a... Uh, arduous i hear but rewarding experience uh was the albert sarah which i was not able to catch so i'm gonna have to leave it to you two to discuss uh, but that is uh la liberté yeah i wouldn't describe it as arduous okay. um, i mean but you know it's uh, uh it, i think this is a totally singular experience i think it's probably the most radical film in the official selection in some time i, I can't think of anything else that that um that comes close. Um, this is the latest film by Albert Serra, who was last here with um, The Death of Louis XIV, um, starring Jean-Pierre Leo. And um, it's, again, like, um, you know, a, a, a period piece, um, but it's a film that is kind of a culmination of this, that's um, taken different forms. Uh, it, it, it's a bit misleading to say it originated, but he did, he did stage a play in Berlin, also called Liberté, last year at the Volksbühne, which is um, sort of about these libertines uh, in the forest. So it's a similar setting, a little bit more narrative in, in that play. Uh, and I think you, you do get a little bit of it in this film, especially in the beginning. There's a little bit of exposition about why these people are here and what they're trying to do. And they reference, they reference the revolution, uh, the French Revolution. They reference also um, the presence of a nearby convent where they're trying to like, you know, where there's a, a kidnapping scheme possibly being hatched. Although the, the plot just does sort of follow, even though the plot is, is somewhat developed in the play that he staged um, in Berlin in the film it, it sort of fades away and becomes this sort of um, this basically set over one night I would I, I think it is uh, and uh, it's a film in which you see a lot of it basically turns this forest clearing into a kind of nocturnal cruising ground um, there's a lot of uh, action and talking about the action, uh, anticipating the action, um, and uh, you see various sex acts um, being performed, uh, often quite obliquely. I actually, when, when you think back of the film, I don't think you actually see that much that's explicit. I think you do. You do? You see a few things that are explicit. You yeah. see a few things that are certainly very graphic. And there's one moment when someone who seems to have suffered burns um, is who, who has a, a, a stump, who has a sort of uh, amputated yeah, arm, yeah. and the arm is being sort of 
Tortured in some way. Tortured, you know, in a very bloody fashion. Yeah. Um, you know, there's lots of what seems to be kind of real pissing, you know, men on women and women on men, as far as I can see, or, or um, either way. Um, and, yeah, a lot of it is, I think, some of the most graphic, I wouldn't say necessarily graphic sex, because some of it, you know, is, is sex depending on context. But some of the most graphic acts I've seen certainly inofficial selection in Cannes. Now, I have to say that I have a sort of touch-and-go relationship with Albert Serra's films. Um, I am fascinated by Birdsong. I absolutely loved um, The Death of Louis XIV. Um, some of his other work I find really heavy going. And there is something about the way he creates an atmosphere. I mean, certainly there is a sort of there's something sort of very diamond-like about some of the imagery here and the way it's shot, which suggests paintings by, you know, those 18th century painters, very kind of decorative painters, Fragonard and Boucher, and certainly the look and the sense of an authentic capturing of 18th century spirit um, is absolutely there. There is something for me, I, I found it quite draggy and I found it quite depressing in a way. I mean, I, I loved the um, very precise literary nature of the language in French. There's also mm -hmm. German and Italian dialogue, which seemed absolutely true. And, you know, I can, I can see that he's absolutely steeped in the period of late 18th century libertinage. But to me, it felt a bit, it was definitely, you know, uh, the Marquis de Sade, but for me, I, I was getting a sense of 121st day of Sodom when, you know, kind of things had wound down and these were, these were the stragglers. Um, I think I this might be what he was going for. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure he is, you know, but there is, there is a sense of sort of, let's say, libidinal fatigue mm -hmm. about the whole thing. And mm -hmm. there's a wonderful moment, actually, I, I did like this when someone comes up with an idea for a sexual act so kind of baroque and unpleasant that the other guy says, well, you're, you have much more imagination than I credited you with. <laughs> and there are these moments Which, of well, humor in it. There are quite a few of those. Right? Um, <laughs> well, this is the one about, it, it begins with someone uh, coming till they puke and then it kind of gets oh, yeah, more it gets kind more of elaborate. Baroque and, from there. Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the film is about that, right? I mean, it is sort of about the absurdity and the gruesome logic of this erotic imagination, the sadomasochistic imagination, in some way. But I found it. I found it. I found it completely mesmerizing. You know, despite the um, graphic nature of some of the scenes, I don't think I've seen a film that looks like this. I mean, I think it's it's really beautifully shot and lit. And I think the editing is really interesting too, in terms of you know, it's a film about desire, which means it's a film about looking and watching and so much of it is about sex you know a, a acts being performed for the consumption of others and, um, and the way the film sort of reorients your point of view from moment to moment scene to scene i think is is really quite interesting um on a formal level i mean what i liked about it most was this idea that sort of certain acts were taking place in full view and other things were happening within these kind of sedan chairs which become like kind of enclosed stages mm -hmm. and a lot of the time you don't really know what's going on it is also one of those films in which most of the men are kind of you know bloated and shriveled and you know that's really an not stereotype so yeah. sorry that's an albert stereotype I well think. yeah of course but but <laughs> then you know the type. women look fabulous in their kind of perukes and you know the the, the kind of you know their nudity is sort of ripely joyous and the men's is you know let's say 
a little harder to take. And um, <laughs> it's um, there was I couldn't tell one guy. I think dozed off at one point, but early on, one guy seemed to either have a, a sort of strange was it a penis made of leather or something? But it was very large, or whatever, and strangely shaped, it was whatever it was. Some kind of probably leather sheath of some, of some sort. Uh, yeah, never explained, but you know, <laughs> leave it to your imagination. <laughs> um, if there are wonderful moments though when, when you know, like one of the uh, fat guys who I think is one of the servants is kind of lumbering around looking very bored indeed. <laughs> <laughs> it's just another day of the another office. Another day, yeah, another day in the forest, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, part of, that's part of sex too, I think, you know, I think sometimes it is tedious and i think this whole it, it is about like waiting a lot of it um mm -hmm. so i don't know if we've sold it for you no. <laughs> yeah i'm sorry i call it arduous there's a, there's a lot no to... i would go i would go with arduous, would go with arduous. yeah <laughs> yeah and, and I'm, I'm perfectly open to the spirit of this film you know yeah. uh theoretically i love the idea of it but uh, in reality, I found it um, yeah. a hard slog. And actually, I think it's been a while since I remember seeing anyone in a filming can really enjoying sex. So uh, let's see. <laughs> I, will, I should say, I, I saw a version of this too that was um, an installation. Oh, um, how is that different? Which is a, a two, it's a two, it's, and there are some ways in which the film, you know, works um, as, an, as an object, as an installation piece too, because um, it, the, there, the installation is about 40, 45 minutes. It's two screens uh, facing each other. Um, it was staged at the um, Reina Sofia in, in Madrid. Um, I actually like it very much as an installation as well. Mm. There's something about the way this, uh, this, this film actually creates a space. And having seen various iterations of this, you know, this experiment that's now spanned a few years, like the, doing it on, on stage, doing it as a two-screen piece, and, and, and doing it as, as, as cinema, I think it's, it's interesting to see how he's approached this, you know, how this problem of like dramaturgical space and, and, and how to work it out in these different, yeah. uh, different forms. For some reason, I'm, I'm, your descriptions of it are making me think of that line from the, the Casanova film, I'm forgetting the title. The one that's about from Casanova's journals. Oh, the story oh, of my death. The story yeah. of my death. We go way beyond. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like what happens here as well. Yep. Having said that about people having pleasure with sex in Cannes, I suspect that there will be a great deal of pleasure in the Kashish film. And we're going to see four hours of people having a great time having sex. And we're all going to be kind of drumming our fingers and looking at our watches. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Well, maybe he'll be having the greatest time of all. But anyway, we'll see. While the masters of international cinema grace the Crossette, Mubi brings the best of Cannes to you. This month, stream highlights from the festival's past with Mubi's annual Cannes Takeover series. This year's impressive lineup includes Palme d'Or winner Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, as well as Amores Perros from this year's jury president Alejandro González Iñárritu, plus career bests from Cannes heavyweights Gus Van Sant, Hirokazu Koreeda, Takeshi Miike, the Darden brothers, and many more. Plus, if you sign up during the festival, you'll get three months for just $1. From now until May 25th, go to mubi.com slash film comment to claim the offer. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film comment for 90 days of great cinema for just $1. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Lila Aviles' The Chambermaid, an official selection of new directors' new films and winner of the top prize at Mexico's prestigious Morelia Film Festival. This richly observed portrait of a maid in a high-end hotel in Mexico City balances social commentary with absurdist comedy and echoes the themes of Alfonso Cuarón's Roma. 
A.O. Scott of The New York Times calls it sublime and says it provides flickers of humanity that feel almost miraculous. The Chambermaid opens June 26th at Film Forum in New York before expanding to select cities. To explore Ovid.tv's catalog of documentaries and arthouse films, head over to www.ovid.tv, that's O-V-I-D TV, and sign up with the coupon code CAN, C-A-N-N-E-S, to get 50% off the monthly subscription price for three months. This coupon code is only valid until May 31st, so sign up as soon as you can. To keep up with their latest releases, follow Ovid.tv on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So yeah, that's that's a Sarah, and actually an interesting, it's a good kind of segue to another movie uh, two of us just saw, just because of the period setting, I guess, and also actually the kind of looking and the proximity, and, and in many ways a kind of, I don't know if erotic is the right word for it, but there's definitely a very intense physicality to it, uh, and that movie is The Lighthouse, um, the uh, second feature by Robert Eggers. Um, uh, perhaps better known as a film that's pairing Robert Pattinson with Willem Dafoe as two lighthouse keepers just slowly driving each other mad. And that this is in the director's fortnight. And, and its first press screening, or its first screening is early Sunday morning, which is the same slot as uh, Gaspar Noe's Climax was last year. <laughs> and uh, this is a film I'd been looking forward to. I was just intrigued by, by the premise of it. Uh, and... You know, it's it's very much a weird combination of like stripped down, but also kind of florid uh, in the sense it's like a, it's, I don't even think it's like a one through three frame. It's like a one, one frame, right? It's, it's a square frame. It looked like it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's nothing more, nothing less than these two in, in a lighthouse going through their tasks, talking, getting on each other's nerves and, you know, talking in a very Baroque and florid Nineteenth century, drawn from Melville, as the credit, yeah. credit card says. Credit a sequence at the end says Melville, uh, Sarah Orne Jewett, and Lighthouse Journals. So, surely a, a, a long research process there. Um, and there's 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 this mystical element in it because you know, the Pattinson character suspects that there's he's missing out in some way. He's he's never allowed to operate the light uh, itself, and that Willem Dafoe, you know. It's very superstitious, so that kind of creeps in more and more. I don't know. I don't know, Jonathan. You you saw it as well. I I got a little. I basically liked it, but I did get it, there was it got a little not a little repetitive, and just the sense of the, it just felt like it was very much this horror horror movie sense of like there's there's something awful around the corner, and that became very familiar after a while, and in a way, kind of I don't know hackneyed even as, as extreme as things get. Um, and, and the sound design is, is amazing, for example, just like this constant barrage. Foghorns, yeah. grinding Fog machinery, horns. wind. Yeah, wind, um, flatulence. I think there's a bass harmonica in the music, it sounded like. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I found it absolutely riveting. I mean, it's very, very Baroque. It's very ripe. The mm -hmm. performances are extraordinary. I mean, and they are very physical, mm -hmm. arduous performances. You yeah. know, you can tell that they're actually getting the blast of the wind and rain. <laughs> Willem Dafoe, I, I think one of the most extraordinary performances of his, his career. He obviously went into it. He was determined to treat every day like <laughs> speak like a pirate day. Um, and it's extraordinary. And, and, you know, it's a kind of, you know, tobacco chewing performance. And he's got his pipe going and he's got this thicket of beard 
um, almost mm. as thick as the forest in the Sarah film. Um, and but but visually, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. It looks as if it's been shot in charcoal. I mean, it's black mm. and white. This ink and charcoal, right. and it's it's really an amazing feat of chiaroscuro, but also a feat of design. Um, extraordinary, extraordinary shot where the camera kind of cranes up on the inside mm-hmm. of the lighthouse. Um, I mean, there are a lot of extraordinary shots. And I think you're right that after a while, it gets repetitive. It overplays its hand. Um, the madness sets in and the madness keeps going relentlessly. I mean, I think it could have been maybe 10, hour, 10 minutes shorter. Um, but there is this sense of sort of impending doom and something mm-hmm. around the corner. And it actually, there are a couple of moments where it gets a little too explicit in kind of knitting, uh, you know, Melville and the Ancient Mariner yeah. and H.P. Lovecraft. Um, <laughs> right. But it's also... About the most Freudian film I've seen in in ages. It's a kind of Oedipal, um, you know, Oedipal slash homoerotic. You know, you know, you can you certainly get the smell of salty semen, as it were. And um, you know, it's uh, it's, but it's something's absolutely yeah. a blast. I mean, it's the most kind of joyously directed in terms of. Yeah you know, just pulling out every stop and... Um, yeah, ex- yeah, exploring every every inch of the, of the lighthouse and, and just enjoying all the artifacts that are there. And, you know, I, I mean, that, I did like that. I mean, one thing that's been interesting to, interesting to me is is thinking about getting into the headspace of, of someone in the 19th century and thinking that if half the time you're not eating well or you're not sleeping well, you're, you know, you're in near total solitude hallucinations aren't so much like a separate thing as like maybe part of the continuum of your experience. And it's a bit like the time we spend in Cannes, you know, sort of two <laughs> two weeks sitting in the dark, you know, is maybe not so unlike the experience of these guys four weeks. Worshipping the light. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so yeah, their madness, it, it becomes more than just a, you know, just madness. I, it, 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 it just, it seems more natural somehow. Yeah. There is a supernatural element that's and, 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 you know, there is a mermaid. I mean, there has to be a mermaid of some sort. Um, but uh, it, it felt very, like, ripe material for, for Defoe. Like, like this could be, like, a two-person stage play, really. In, in some ways, it really feels like they're just trading to raids that are, like, out of Pinter or something, you know, just one, alternating these long strings of, of, of insults and, and, and circling and, and vying with each other, um, it, which... Th- almost tends to make everything else feel kind of extraneous and too much. Um, There's an extraordinary moment when Defoe uh, shot from below and and kind of lit in this extraordinary uh, chiaroscuro way, delivers this extraordinary extended maritime curse on... um, On Pattinson and, you know, basically yeah. kind of wishing all the horrors of the deep upon him. And I actually thought, well, actually, this is the moment at which we come closest to imagining what Wells's Moby Dick would have been like. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, w- I was just uh, interrupting a little to point. We're in the press area and they, they show the press conferences on televisions here. So if you hear any of that, that's what that is. And the coming and going crowds. And it's the press conference actually for the Poor Boy movie. With some whistling. Where they're demonstrating the whistling dialogue. I guess someone asked them to demonstrate it. So now I'm fully convinced it's real. And I will write a linguistics treatise mm-hmm. on it. <laughs> oh, and, and back to the lighthouse, I have to yeah. say there, there is one particularly great 
seagull performance in there. One very <laughs> angry seagull. Yeah. Yeah. Very angry, holding his ground. Yeah. Yeah, it is good. Forget about the dogs of Cannes. It's, it's the seagulls of Cannes. Uh, I mean, so yeah. So those are, the, I mean, those are the kind of three big films that we, we just saw. I don't know if either of you want to weigh in a little on something else that was a highlight. We've, we've talked about a few things, but um, I don't know. Bakar Bakarau, we were Bakarau fan. I I know you, Jonathan. You, we we have the written record of yeah. yeah I've written about it at great length. <laughs> great um, length. Actually, the film that is staying with me is Almodovar's Pain and Glory, mm. which mm. in some ways isn't a departure, and in others very much is because it's the first Almodovar film I think I've ever seen that doesn't have him you know reveling in incredibly convoluted mm. plot structures, and it appears to be, although of course he denies it autobiographical but he does refer to um, the film director character in the film making autofictions mm -hmm. and it's definitely that but it's very much it's clearly about his life and his experience and his sense of fatigue and his worry about you know how long he's been he's going to be able to keep it up mm -hmm. and about you know physical um, illness and and despair and then it comes together in the end with this absolutely kind of beautiful almost throwaway redemptive flourish and you think ah oh, this really is Proust this is this is Almodovar's Proustian film this is about it's his whole philosophy of and it's a very simple philosophy about how you can turn your life into art and, yeah. and what it can do yeah, yeah, I, I I like the film a lot too. I think it's his I think it's his best film in years, you know. Um, and uh, I hadn't read that he has denied the autobiographical aspects of the film, which seems strange. I mean, it's obviously a film that invites you know that reading um, and plays around with it um, quite a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. I I mean, I, I think I I even remember reading an interview before this where he talked about just at least the physical toll of of, of things that seems to connect to this movie. Yeah. And Banderas is great. I think it's his best performance in a long time. Yeah, he's he's terrific. And and he very convincingly wears Almodovar's hair and beard, <laughs> and and apparently actually his clothes. And I was wondering oh. whether that was actually Almodovar's apartment in the film. And you okay. can imagine it being like that. This is absolutely beautiful, and the colors just kind of, you know, roar in this sort of symphony of yeah. uh, different hues it's wonderful yeah well i think that brings us to the end of our our latest episode i don't know where we're all running off to i'm going to be probably seeing a certain terrence malick probably film. a certain terrence three hour terrence, three malick, terrence film. malick film jonathan you, you as well um i probably will be at some point um i'm kind of concerned about um the long ones you know i i, I sort of take long films in my stride as a kind of lav diaz um you know uh, a committed viewer of eight hour ten hour lav diaz films you know which makes me so shocked that all all the avengers fans you know were complaining about you know needing to to, to know when to take a toilet break uh, in that film i mean come on you know um they should, listen to, they should listen to lav diaz who says you can take a break anytime like that's a you know come, lav, come and go lav does not want his film shown with intermissions because i think it's about you know like the viewer can decide when to mm -hmm. take a break take right. a nap yeah. but good. we've got a three-hour malik a four-hour Kashish, Kashish, starting at 10 p.m. I yeah. think a nearly five-hour love, Diaz. So you know, um, just just hold back on drinking the rosé. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll, we'll to end on. Yeah, we'll end with that sage advice. Um, but uh, thank you both so much. Thanks, Nick. Thank you.
This episode of the Film Comment Podcast was sponsored by Mubi. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Dive into Mubi's can takeover by heading to mubi.com slash filmcomment. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmcomment to get three months for just $1 until May 25th. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Lila Aviles' The Chambermaid. An official selection of new directors' new films, this richly observed portrait of a maid in a high-end hotel in Mexico City comes to theaters starting June 26th. Along with six films by Wang Bing, Ovid.tv also has a large collection of the best of Asian cinema, including the Japanese friendship epic Happy Hour and Thailand's Intoxicating and Mysterious by the time it gets dark. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.